So most of us were taught in grade school about the five whys when you're asking questions. The who, when, what, where questions that help you to investigate things. Right? And so these questions help us to, to dig deeper into things, to get to know something, and they're fundamental questions as we look at any basic worldview. So any basic worldview has to answer these questions in order for it to be some sort of coherent worldview. Right? And so Al Mohler, in his book on the Apostles' Creed that we've kind of been following in this study, he lays out God as maker of heaven and earth through these questions, the who, what, when, where, why, and then the how. The how, the how kind of awkwardly fits in there. It's not a W word. Um, but he answers this question of God as maker of heaven and earth and kind of develops the Christian worldview based upon this idea. And so that's the format that we're going to use for our study this evening as we look at these questions and the way the Bible sets forth the answers to these questions. So the first one is the who. So let's open our Bibles to Genesis 1. The first verse in Scripture immediately introduces us to the who, to who created the heavens and the earth. Moses writes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible is very clear from verse 1 that it's God who created the heavens and the earth. Very clear. Moses lays this down that there was nothing and then in the beginning God created. So Scripture points us to this God who creates and it also points us to the triune God who creates. So we know him as the God who creates, but even in creation we see the triune God. And so the Father is the primary agent in creation. That is very clear, not debated among Christians, but is what is the role of the Son and the Holy Spirit in creation, which is, is where typically the debate will come in. But we see the Father is the primary agent in creation and in the creation account. But then later in Scripture, we see that the Son also had a role in creation. So 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Paul writes, One Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. So through whom are all things, through Christ are all things, and we exist through Him. And then in Colossians 1.16, Paul writes, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So by Christ all things were created both on heaven and on on earth, and then he says visible and invisible. So both the material and the spiritual realm were created through Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So again, all things were created through Christ for him. And Paul makes it very clear, everything was created through him. Thrones, dominions, heaven and earth, visible, un invisible. So the entire the material world and the entire spiritual realm was created through Christ. And then in John, the famous passage about the Word becoming flesh, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. So again, this idea that all things were made through this incarnate Word, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So again, apart from Christ, nothing was made is what John is, is making very clear there. And then he talks about how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, pointing to Jesus Christ as that Word. Right? So it's very clear that the New Testament points back to creation and showing that through Christ all things were created. And then along with that, we see the Spirit's role in creation. Uh, if we look at our text in verse 2, it says that the earth was without form and void. 
And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So already in verse 2 in Genesis, we see the Spirit at work, and the Spirit can be described as as completing, filling, and giving life to God's creation. And the psalmist understood this very well. In Psalm 104, verse 30, they write, When you send forth your spirit, they are created. So again, through Christ and through the Spirit of God, creation sprung forth. And so the biblical narrative clearly presents the God of creation as a triune God, working in harmony and in union right? Working as the Godhead in perfect harmony. And that's what we have to recognize in creation is that the Trinity is at work there, the triune God. And so when we look at the who, we know God the Father was present. We know God the Son and the Holy Spirit were present in creation and all had a role in creation. And then God's identity as creator God is central to properly understanding him. That's what I want to make clear. For us to understand God, we have to understand him as creator. It's what he sets forth from verse 1. So it's central to our understanding of God and even of ourselves as humanity. And so in order to rightly understand him, we have to see him as he's revealed himself. And he's revealed himself as a creator. And so with the Apostles' Creed... Along with God's word, right, God is introduced in this, in this fashion. And so let's turn to Job, because Job came to see God as he was as the creator God, I think, very, very well. If we turn to Job 38. Job comes to have a deeper and more intimate understanding of God through his encounter with God as God reveals himself to Job as the one who is sovereign over all creation. So Job 38, if someone wants to read verses 4 through 7. So what is God pointing back to? Creation, right? As he's questioning Job, he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Right? And he just continues, who determined its measurements? Right? Obviously, these are rhetorical questions that we all know the answer, that it was God. That it was God who laid the foundations of the earth. It is God who knows the measurements of this earth and who created it. And so, as as God continues, we see Job's response uh, in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5. It says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So Job has come to realize that the God who he has called into question is the sovereign God over creation. And as God has come and revealed himself to Job, it has left Job humbled and in awe of him, of the creator God. And so Job just basically falls down, admitting that he is of no account in light of this God who has created all things. And then God only continues um, by pointing to Leviathan, a behemoth, and then in, in Job 42... In Job 42, he he answers again, and then he says in verse 3, Therefore I have uttered words I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. 
So now he has come to understand his God, his creator God. But Job has been humbled by the God of creation. And as should we stand in humility towards the God who has created all things. And that is how we have to understand him as we understand the who of creation. So he is the maker of heaven and earth. And he stands in complete contrast to the prevailing worldviews of our society in regards to creation. right? Because right now mainstream society would deny the who of creation, the person of God who created all things, right? So according to the prevailing worldview, there is no sovereign and personal God who created all things. Rather, they see things as a series of events that are sprung into action by chance and random forces over long periods of time, which would have brought forth the cosmos and all of creation, which they would not call it that, right? And so the, the worldview, the prevailing worldview of this earth that's being taught in schools, in the media, in our government, stands in complete contrast to what we affirm as Christians. And so just like with the Apostles' Creed, we need to affirm that God indeed is the maker of heaven and earth, that he indeed is the one who created all things, that it was not through random chance events, through long periods of time, that these things have just randomly occurred and come to be what they are. And so this, this idea that prevails in our current society stands in complete contrast to our biblical worldview that we must uphold, which is why, again, that we point back to things like the Apostles' Creed that help us to guide us in order for our doctrine to not go into error. And so this naturalistic mindset ultimately is embraced by those who are rejectors of God, and it should be no surprise to us because the Bible lays this forth. Let's turn to Romans 1 now. Romans 1 explains what we see occurring on a daily basis in regards to our Creator God. So Romans 1, if someone will read 19 through 25. Nineteen through twenty five, thank you. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their So what is Paul teaching us in regards to the Creator and His creation? It's clearly evident, right? It's clearly evident that He is the Creator, so we have no excuse, right? God's what's called general revelation, this idea that God has made Himself evidently known by that which He's created, right? That by general revelation, we all know that there's a God, 
But the text is saying that what we naturally do by nature is we reject that God. And instead, what do we do? What is Paul telling us that we do instead with that creation? Exchange the truth for a lie, and then we go on to worship it, right? And is that not what we see with, with naturalistic philosophies and that's those sort of ideas is that what they do is they exchange the truth for a lie, and they look at the creation, and they begin to worship it ultimately as, as the one that has brought forth life rather than the creator God who has brought forth all life. So as Christians, we must affirm the who of Scripture, that we have a triune God who has created all things for his glory, and we'll see that when we see the why. So next we'll move on to the what. Again, Scripture answers the question on what did God create. So Genesis 1 makes it clear that there was nothing except God in the beginning. So we'll kind of turn back to Genesis. We'll be looking at our text as we continue. But this is important, because if there had been any type of matter or substance, it would then not be dependent on God. Because that matter or substance would be eternal also, such as God is eternal. And so then God would not have sovereignty over that matter or substance that would have already been eternal with God. And so as Christians, we must affirm that only God is eternal, that he is everlasting, that he has no beginning or end. So we do not affirm that any matter or any part of creation was already preexistent or present before God created God created everything. So again, with the Apostles' Creed, we affirm that God created the heavens and the earth, everything. He created the entire cosmic realm, the angelic realm, all plants, living creatures, every cell was created by God. So when we look at the what of God being creator of everything, we have to affirm that he created everything. And that's exactly what the Bible lays out for us. I love how, how it's put in Nehemiah 9, verse 6. The Levites are, are crying out to God in prayer, and they say, You are Lord, you alone. So they're acknowledging the one God, and they go on to say, You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all that is in it, or on it. So again, he's, God has made heaven, the heaven of heavens, everything on the earth, and all that is in them. So everything in the heavenly realm, everything on the earth, and you preserve all of them. So not only does God create it all, but then he preserves it. He sustains it. He is imminent with the creation that he has created. And then they go on to say, and the host of heaven worships you. And so Nehemiah is laying out, I think, this beautiful verse that God has created all things, and all things, the response that it should be is that we worship him. And that is what the creation was created to do. And then Revelation 10, verses 5 through 6, and the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it. So again, this like statement of who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. And then Colossians 1, 16 Talking about Christ, he created everything visible and invisible. So again, this idea that God, the triune God, has created all things. Visible, invisible, spiritual realm, material world. And so as we affirm that God has created all things, we also need to look at how God has created man uniquely, right? Because man is part of that creation, but it's important that as Christians we kind of see the distinction that we have that God has, has given us a unique role in creation. And again, 
apart from creation, we won't rightly know who we are as people. We won't rightly understand our identity if we don't know our identity that God has created us with. And so it's important that we understand it from a Christian biblical perspective because the naturalistic worldview of evolution, it devalues mankind ultimately. It strips us of our unique personhood. It strips us of the the role we've been given by God. God has given us a role to be stewards and to have dominion over this earth, right? And so outside of the biblical worldview, we will not rightly understand who we are and our role. And that's why the, even the counsel that we get from people who ascribe to the naturalistic worldview, the counsel they give has no hope. It's empty and vain. Because they don't understand the human predicament, right? Created in God's image, but yet fallen, right? We aren't getting into Genesis 3 today, but that's important that we understand from a biblical worldview, creation and fall, and then pointing us to redemption. But outside of that, we cannot understand the human predicament. And so this is why so many, or all other worldviews are so deficient in their understanding of man. So let us look at Genesis 1, verse 26. If someone will read that for me, verse 26 of Genesis 1. So what is unique about man? Made in God's image, right? There's clearly a change in the narrative at this point as we see, and God said, and God said, and he continues to create, but then then God said in verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This should cause us to pause and be in awe of what God has done, right? This should change how we view others, how we view humanity, and especially a lost and dying humanity, is that we are created in God's image. No matter how sin-stained and tarnished we are as rejectors of God by nature, we are created in God's image. And so again, understanding creation helps us to actually understand our God rightly, And it helps us to understand ourselves. So what did God create? Again, he created everything. He created man in his image. He created all the creatures, the land and the sea, the angelic realm, right? The angelic realm is not eternal either. It is not from everlasting, right, in the past. But God is. He created all things. And so, again, it is vital for our understanding of the entire Christian worldview to understand God just like the Apostles' Creed states, as maker of heaven and earth. So, so far we've looked at the who of creation, God, the what, everything, as we just affirmed, and now we'll look at the when of creation. So again, going back to Genesis 1.1, it answers this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So there was a beginning to all of this. Prior to that, there was no time. God was outside of time. Psalm 90, verse 2, Moses writes, it's the same Moses that's writing Genesis and understands the creation narrative. Moses writes, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So Moses understands that God is eternal in both directions, 
from forever in the past to forever in the future is God. He is everlasting to everlasting. So he is from, he is from infinity in the past and infinity in the future. And it's often referred to as the doctrine of God's infinity. Right? And again, we cannot affirm that there is any matter or any substance that was, was preexistent and eternal. There was only God. And the when is that he created and time began. And it's hard for us to understand this, right? Because we can't grasp a reality outside of time. It's all we have known in our present condition is time. And so for us to truly understand God's timelessness is a difficult doctrine for us to understand. You just try and do any systematic theology study on it, and you'll probably be confused by the end of it. But the reality is we have to affirm that God is eternal. And it's an amazing reality that we can't rightly fully comprehend. But it's a beautiful truth, right? And that's what God was pointing Job to, is who are you, Job, to talk to the everlasting God in this nature? And he reveals himself as that creator God, which leaves Job in awe. And so there was a beginning to time, to space and matter, and it's Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. And from here, time, time began. Time as we know it began at this point. And so God is sovereign over his creation but he's also imminent with it. JT talked about this last week, that this idea that God is transcendent, right? That God stands above his creation, that he is like a king seated on his throne, that he is clearly above us, and we are left in awe of him. But he's also imminent in that he, he works among us, that he even dwells among us in Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians 4.4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, again, this idea of time, God sent forth his son. So Christ entered actually into our time and space, and he was born of the woman, born under the law, right? This idea that God is imminent in Christ, that Christ came to dwell among us, to actually enter into time among his creation is, again, a beautiful reality. And so as we continue looking at the when of creation, I want to talk about the idea of six-day creation, right? So let's turn to Exodus first. And then we'll make our way back to Genesis. Exodus 20. Someone will read verses 9 through 11 of Exodus 20. So in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, is what Moses is affirming here in Exodus. And I think it's important, I wanted to talk about kind of the six-day argument, because I think it's an important argument. Liberalism began to attack the plain reading of Scripture, began theological liberalism, began to attack reading the text for the historical narratives that they present themselves to be. And as such, many of the accounts in the Bible that we would say are historical narrative began to come under scrutiny and began to be looked at with a critical lens with scientific research standing above the Scriptures, right? Standing in authority over Scripture rather than subject to the truth of Scripture. 
And so as this began to happen, truths of the Bible began to, to erode and people began to reject truth of the historical narratives. And ultimately, what this typically leads to is rejection of more and more parts of the Bible and the historical accuracy of it. And so Brian and JT both talked about um, different levels of doctrine uh, in theological triage. This idea that there are some level one doctrines that if you do not affirm them, you're not a Christian. Or if you begin to reject these level one doctrines, you're no longer a Christian. Like if you reject that Christ atoned for your sins on the cross as a, as a Christian, you're, you're rejecting a, a core belief in Christ as foundational what we believe. And I would say you're, no, you're not a Christian. You never were a Christian if you reject those truths. Right? So that's a level one doctrine. Level two doctrines would be things such as uh, infant baptism, right? And, and depending on what you believe, things like that, we may not be able to do church together, but we still may be able to call you a brother or sister in Christ. Then level three doctrines are those that we can do church together. They're typically interpretive issues and things like that where we would affirm 99% of the same things for the most part, but then there's little interpretive issues along the way which we all have within churches. And so I would not call six-day creation a level one theological doctrine, but I think it can lead to level one very quickly. Because when you begin to reject things like a historical Adam in whom was our covenantal head and rejected God in whom we all stand condemned because of what he has done, we're starting to lead down a very slippery slope because you're going to start rejecting inherent sin human nature and understanding these truths that are very evident in who we are in humanity and the need that we have in Christ. And what typically happens is as you begin to reject more and more of what I would call these historical events in the Bible, such as God's creation, you will reject more and more. And that's typically how it goes Tell many people begin to reject the miracles of the New Testament and ultimately possibly the resurrection of Christ and things such as that. And so that's why we do need to be very careful when theological liberalism and things like that begins to reject what I would call the, the plain reading of the text. And so um, we'll kind of talk about this six-day argument, um, but it really centers around the idea of what does day mean? What, what does a day mean? In Hebrew, it's yom. It's, it's probably one of the, the, the one word that a lot of Christians know because of this argument is yom. Um, but much of the argument centers around this word, and it's arguing against a six-day literal creation. So if we look at Genesis 2-4, this is kind of the typical way the argument will go. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Someone will read verse 4 for me. Did God create in one day? No. But the text says, in the day that the Lord made the heaven and the earth, right? The earth and the heavens. So that, that Moses is presenting to us day used in a, a manner which is plural for multiple days, speaking of the six-day creation, which Moses will later describe in Exodus 20, which we already looked at. Right, so Moses is talking about the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day and talking about it uh, multiple days with one word using day. And then typically what they'll say is they'll look at 2 Peter 3.8 and other texts like that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And so they'll use arguments such as this to say, well, can we know that God created in a day? What does God mean by a day? Does God mean one day or does he mean many days as he means here in Genesis 2, 
4. So first off, going to the Peter text, I would first say, is Peter trying to explain the biblical meaning of a day? Is he trying to talk about how long a day is? Or is he trying to point us to the fact that the eternal Lord's perspective of time is not like our own? And I would argue that is what he's pointing us to. We don't need to develop our entire theology of a day based upon that text of what Peter is saying there. He has a clear message for us, and it doesn't have to concern how long a literal day is. And then going back to Genesis 2-4 with what Moses is writing there, it all deals with context, right? I can talk about a day in the past or back in the day when I was younger, and I can be talking about a whole time period. Or I can say there was a day in the past, talking about a specific day, which leads us back to context, which brings us back to our Genesis 1 text, uh, because this is where the argument will now center, is on the Genesis 1 text, on how many days are we talking here, right? And so Genesis 1, if someone will read, let's do verse 5, we can look at many verses, but we'll look at verse 5 as an example. So how does he describe this day? One day, right? So first day, evening, and morning, right? So evening and morning. So again, as we look at context, we can follow every day that Moses does this in the text, where he says there was evening, there was morning, day two. There was evening, there was morning, day three. There was evening, there was morning, day four, until we end up with our six-day creation and a seventh day for Sabbath, right? And so this pattern continues every day, and then we have the seventh day, and then what does Moses do with this pattern? Well, God in Exodus 20 points us to the reality that our, our, our week is based upon his creative acts in creation, right? And so that's why it took us to that Exodus text at first, God patterns our work week, basically, based upon what he did in creation. And so he's saying, Israel, in six days you shall work, just like I did in creation. And so he's using his creation, his creation events, as a pattern by which we're, we're to follow. And so again, I, I point back to these things, and I, and I see first day, second day, third day, I see evening, morning, and then I would say context would lead us to believe these, these are days. These are day one, two, three, four, five, six, and then the Sabbath. And then the question I would ask, too, is how do the New Testament authors look back on this? Because they help provide an interpretive grid for the Old Testament. We can look at how the New Testament authors look back on the Old Testament, and it helps to guide us in our interpretation of the Old Testament. And again, I would argue that Jesus, both Jesus and the New Testament authors, such as Paul, look back on creation as though it's a historical account, that it's not some fairy tale or just a spiritual lesson, but that it's a historical account of what God has done as maker of heaven and earth. And then the last thing I would say is this. If you were to write a story about God creating the earth, how would you make it more clear that it was a literal day? I don't think you could, honestly. Because Moses writes, there was evening, there was morning, day one. I don't, he could go on and talk, count the hours, or he could do something like that. But I think that he makes it abundantly clear that this is a six-day creation. And so why this matters, again, is, is it matters by how we have, we have a worldview as a whole. 
how we view humanity. Because typically what ends up happening is a lot of Christians begin adopting the prevailing worldviews of the day and try and fit it into Genesis 1. And again, as I argued from the beginning, our view of Genesis, our view of God as creator of heaven and earth, marks our entire view of God, the Bible, and, hu- and humanity as a whole, right? And so how we view God as creator is important. And so as we begin to erode Genesis and God is the creator, sovereign God over all things, will affect how we view his word and how we view him. And so we don't need to accommodate the prevailing worldviews into our scriptures. Rather, we, we interpret events around us through the grid and lens of a biblical worldview. And that's what we are, ought to do as Christians. And so as we conclude the, the win of creation, we see that God was outside of time, but that God created time, that God even was imminent and present in time through Christ, right, and, and through his imminence among us and his presence. And then we also see that, again, I'm putting forth this idea of a literal six-day creation, that, that God did create the earth in six literal days. And so the next question we ask is the how. How did God create? And again, Genesis 1 answers this how question. So God's agent in creation was his word. God's word breaks into the silence with all of its power. And I love how Isaiah describes God's word in Isaiah 55, 11. He says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Right? We know that God's word does not return to him empty, but he goes on to say, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. Right? So God's word accomplishes exactly what he purposes it for, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So as I send out my word, God is saying, as he sends out his word, it accomplishes exactly what he wills and desires. And so, and as we look at the text, we see repetition when it comes to his word and his action with his word. So let's look at the text again of Genesis 1. In the Hebrew text, repetition is something very common that points us to look at something closer and to really try to scrutinize it and see what's going on. So if someone will, um, someone will work with me on this, I want someone to read the first three words of every verse I call out. Do I have someone who will do that? Okay, thank you, Dick. So the first three words of verse 3. Verse 6. Verse 9. 11. Verse 14, 20, 24, 26, then God said, yep, and 29. Yeah, I was going to throw another verse in there, actually. And God said, right? So what's the repetition? What are we supposed to focus on here? God said, right? So again, his word breaks into the silence and creates. It accomplishes exactly what, what he purposes. And it, it says, then God said, that's that transition that we go into him creating humanity. Him, and in that, God said, we see him creating in the first God says, but there we see him commanding his creation as he commands us to have dominion over it, right? To rule over it, to be stewards of his creation. Um, but it's a very clear, repetitive phrase that Moses inserts into the text so that we can clearly see 
that God through his word does exactly what he desires. And it's him that has created and he does it through his word and that should leave us speechless and amazed by the power of God's word and the sufficiency of his word and what his word can accomplish. And ultimately, John will link this word to Christ from whom everything was brought forth. As we already talked about John 1 where God clearly displays to us that the creation came through Christ, the incarnate Son who came in the flesh, who came to redeem us. But John picks up this same language as he starts off his book within the beginning. Right? He's pointing us to the new beginning that we have in Christ, that Christ has come to make all things new, to restore his broken creation. But he points back to the creation narrative as he ties God's word with the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, and points us to the new realities of hope that we have in Christ Jesus, right? That he will make us a new creation. And so again, we affirm that God created everything. We affirm that he did it through his word. And then we need to affirm that he did it out of nothing. Again, as I talked about, there was no eternal matter or no substance. There was nothing prior to God's creation besides God. That was it. And so the term that Christians have typically come to embrace is ex nihilo, out of nothing, is how God has created. So again, his word came out of the silence and created out of nothing. And again, it should just leave us speechless like Job. And so again, it's crucial that we affirm these truths of creation. There was nothing, and then God spoke. So next, as we've, we've looked at the who, the what, the when, the how, last we're going to look at why. Why did God create? It's important that we understand this too. Why did God create everything? I'm going to put forth, and I'm going to defend this with the biblical text, God created the universe and everything in it in the spiritual realm to glorify himself. That is why God created. So first we're going to look at the created order, how the created order was created to display God's glory. So let's look at Psalm 19. Let's turn there together. Psalm 19. If someone will read verses 1 through 2. So David writes, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? So the heavens, in a sense, are preaching the glories of God. They're proclaiming them to us. The heavens are declaring them. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the heavens and the sky are proclaiming God's glory. They're doing exactly what God created them to do. And then he goes on to say, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So again, every day God's glory is being revealed through his created order throughout all of created time. Now, if any of you guys know Daniel Kraft, you won't be, be surprised by this, but one day we were, me and him were driving somewhere, and it, it was a beautiful day out, and he said, man, God really knows how to create a day. And, you know, part of me is like, really, Daniel, you know? But, but he's right. Like, we should look at creation and be in awe, right? Sometimes I give Daniel a hard time because he lives up in the clouds, 
But that's how we should live, right? Up in the clouds, like recognizing God's glory in everything. Recognizing that, yes, the day does preach God's glory. That as we're driving, we should see a message of God's glory in the creation. We should be in awe of it, right? And that's the people of God should be amazed by it. And as we saw in Romans 1, rejectors of God do the opposite. They see the glory of God's creation and they glorify that created order rather than giving glory to God as we saw in Romans 1. And so again, as Christians, we should affirm that the created order is good, but that it points to the one that created it. It points beyond itself. Again, it's pouring forth speech. It's preaching the message of the creator God that created it. And then, not only does creation, is it meant to display God's glory, but so are we. Who can tell me what the first catechism question is in the Westminster Confession? And what is it, Dick? Or someone else? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I think that they got it right with that question. They open up their catechism with that question. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Is that we were created to glorify God. That's what we were created for. And to enjoy Him forever. Because He is good. And we can enjoy Him. Right? But only through Christ Jesus can we enjoy Him. But we can. And so that is our role, and I think that the catechism got it right, and I think Isaiah would defend that with Isaiah 47 verse, 43, verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory. So God created us for his glory, whom I formed and made. So again, God has formed us and made us, and he's done it for his own glory. And I love how Kenneth Matthews puts it in his commentary on Genesis, on Specifically regarding creation, he says the creation account is theocentric, right? It's, it's God-centered, the creation account. It's not creature-centered, right? We can't confuse that. The creation account is not pointing us to a creature-centered account. It's pointing us to the creator-centered account. And he goes on to say its purpose is to glorify the creator by magnifying him through the majesty of the created order, right? Again, this idea that, that the created order has majesty, and it points beyond itself, and so some people, I want to answer this, some people are troubled by the idea that God does things for his own glory. That he would work all things for his glory, that the created order, that humanity, that all things would be for his own glory, right? Because we can't think of it rightly. Because when God does things for his own glory, he does it with perfect holiness and righteousness. But when we do things for our glory, we do it independently of God. And ultimately, when we do things for our glory, we do it in rebellion to the one that actually deserves glory and actually rightfully has glory. And so we can't think of God glorifying himself rightly until we rightly think of ourselves because typically we try to attribute our own attributes to God. And so we think, how could God do things for his own glory? That just sounds selfish and terrible. But that's why we have to understand and embrace the goodness of God and his holiness and his righteousness. And we have to understand all of his attributes together. And then, again, we look at the biblical text. Does the biblical text describe God as glorifying himself? 
And so the last text I want us to turn to is John 17. I know we've looked at a lot of text tonight, but I want us to look at John 17. I think that this perfectly describes God glorifying himself. So if someone will read John 17, verse 1. So what is he saying there? It's saying, glorify me, right? For what purpose? So the Father is glorifying the Son, and the Son is glorifying the Father. So there's, there's this inter-Trinitarian glorification of God going on here. Uh, Maggie, you want to continue and read verse 4 and 5? Thank you. So again, verse 4, I glorified you on earth. That Christ glorified God the Father on earth by accomplishing the work that was given to him. And then verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me. So again, this idea of glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So again, God has always been glorified, even before there was a creation. He's saying, I was with you before creation in your glory. And so here we see again this idea of this inter-Trinitarian glorification. And we see it elsewhere too with the Spirit glorifying the Son. And so there, there are many texts we could look at. But again, I'm presenting this idea that God created for His own glory. And so when we look at creation, when we look at God as maker of heaven and earth, we should just glorify Him. That is our response. That is what we are created to do is to glorify God ultimately. So we affirm that God created for his own glory, and then we have to affirm that God created because he chose to, and he was pleased to do it. He didn't have to create. He didn't need to create. He did it because he was pleased to do it. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God in the heavens, he does as he pleases. So again, God does as he pleases, and we need to affirm that he did it because he was pleased to create, because he chose to. He didn't have to. And the last thing I want to address as far as why did God create is I want to say God did not create because he was lacking in any way. So God was not lacking and chose to create. He doesn't need the universe in order to be God or to somehow be more God. He is God. He is worthy of glory whether he created or not. And so he doesn't need the creation for that. He was not lonely. He did not need to do it, but he chose to. So again, these, these are truths that Christians need to affirm in understanding God as creator and maker of heaven and earth. And so again, it's essential that we, along with the apostles, that we affirm that we believe in God, maker of heaven and earth. And I wanted to, to share a story as, as we close. I, I was raised Catholic and during my catechism in high school, I think it was my freshman year, I'd been given a, a Catholic study Bible. And I remember one night I resolved to actually start reading the Bible. 
uh, I hadn't really been encouraged to do so in church or at home. Uh, maybe I'd read the Gospels a little bit, but outside of that, not very much. And so I thought, you know what, I will start in Genesis, and I will start reading the Bible. So I pull out my study Bible, and it has notes in the beginning. I think, well, you might as well read the notes before you get started so I can get some background on the Bible. So as I'm reading the notes, it's got question and answers for, for youth. It was created for, for youth. And it says, can I take Genesis literally? Can I understand Genesis as a historical account of God creating? I thought, well, that's a great question, you know, because I'm in high school now, and in biology class, and I'm learning about evolution and all these things that don't seem to make sense with some of the things I had been taught but didn't understand at the time. And so my study Bible says, no, you don't have to take Genesis literally. You look at it as though it has spiritual truth in it, but it is not a literal historical account of what God has done. Instead, you look at it for the spiritual truths that are in it. Now, there are also some professing Protestant Bibles that would have similar introductions to Genesis or commentaries or notes on Genesis, um, as I cited with just some of the arguments against the literal six-day creation. So I read this, though. I read this, and I'm, I, I begin to read Genesis 1, and I see God creating. I see all these events occurring, and I'm really wrestling with this idea of what I'm learning in high school and what I'm reading here. And so the next day, I ask my mom. I say, well, how do I make sense of this? And she says, well, fortunately, when I was in college, I, I had a, a young priest who really enlightened me on this. And I thought, okay, this is great. She'll explain this to me. And so she tells me the same thing. She affirms that I do not need to believe these events as trustworthy historical events and such. The rest of Scripture, much of it is the same way, that instead I should look at the spiritual truth in the text. So as I'm listening to her, I'm already realizing that there's a huge conflict between what I'm learning in school and what this Bible is telling me and what even the church at the time was telling me. And so I never finished Genesis, much less the rest of the Bible. I never got past Genesis 1. I have now, but <laughs> at the time, I, I just stopped reading. I, I really was, was about ready to read it. And, and to, to really try to dig into the word. But to me, there was a huge conflict there, is that Moses is presenting this as a historical narrative, and I think that that is clear to the text. And then we're rejecting it? Didn't make any sense to me. And so I want to encourage you, especially parents and youth, to come to terms with the truth that God's word is sufficient, that God has spoken creation into existence and he has done it by his authority and he's done it for his glory and we need to affirm that. And so as a church, that's what we should be teaching and we should be confident in that. We should be confident in our creator God for he has created all things and he's done it out of nothing and it should amaze us and we should glorify him. So as we close, I want to close with Hebrews 11 verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so with the author of Hebrews, that should be our confession, that by faith we see these things to be true and that we glorify God in response to it. Let us close in prayer.